War and Peace, Second Epilogue, Chapter 2, read for LibriVox.org by Nathan King. What Force Moves the Nations? Biographical historians and historians of separate nations understand this force as a power inherent in heroes and rulers. In their narration, events occur solely by the will of a Napoleon and Alexander, or in general of the persons they describe. The answers given by this kind of historian to the question of what force causes events to happen are satisfactory only as long as there is but one historian to each event. As soon as historians of different nationalities and tendencies begin to describe the same event, the replies they give immediately lose all meaning, for this force is understood by them all not only differently, but often in quite contradictory ways. One historian says that an event was produced by Napoleon's power another that it was produced by Alexander's, a third that it was due to the power of some other person. Besides this, historians of that kind contradict each other even in their statement as to the force on which the authority of some particular person was based. Theirs, a Bonapartist, says that Napoleon's power was based on his virtue and genius. Lanfrey, a Republican, says it was based on his trickery and deception of the people. So the historians of this class, by mutually destroying one another's positions, destroy the understanding of the force which produces events, and furnish no reply to history's essential question. Writers of universal history who deal with all the nations seem to recognize how erroneous is the specialist historian's view of the force which produces events. They do not recognize it as a power inherent in heroes and rulers, but as the resultant of a multiplicity of various directed forces. In describing a war of the subjugation of a people, a general historian looks for the cause of the event not in the power of one man, but in the interaction of many persons connected with the event. According to this view, the power of historical personages, represented as the product of many forces, can no longer, it would seem, be regarded as a force that itself produces events. Yet in most cases universal historians still employ the conception of power as a force that itself produces events, and treat it as their cause. In their exposition, an historic character is first the product of his time, and his power only the resultant of various forces, and then his power is itself a force producing events. Gervinus, Schlosser, and others, for instance, at one time proved Napoleon to be a product of the revolution, of the ideas of 1789 and so forth and at another plainly say that the campaign of 1812 and other things they do not like were simply the product of Napoleon's misdirected will, and that the very ideas of 1789 were arrested in their development by Napoleon's caprice. The ideas of the revolution and the general temper of the age produced Napoleon's power, but Napoleon's power suppressed the ideas of the revolution and the general temper of the age. This curious contradiction is not accidental. Not only does it occur at every step, but the universal historian's accounts are all made up of a chain of such contradictions. This contradiction occurs because after entering the field of analysis the universal historians stop halfway. To find competent forces equal to the composite or resultant force, the sum of the components must equal the resultant. This condition is never observed by the universal historians, and so to explain the resultant forces they are obliged to admit in addition to the insufficient components, another unexplained force affecting the resultant action. Specialist historians describing the campaign of 1813 or the restoration of the Bourbons plainly assert that these events were produced by the will of Alexander. 
But the universal historian Gervinus, refuting this opinion of the specialist historian, tries to prove that the campaign of 1813 and the restoration of the Bourbons were due to other things besides Alexander's will, such as the activity of Stein, Metternich, Madame de Stael, Talleyrand, Fitch, Chateaubriand, and others. The historian evidently decomposes Alexander's power into the components, Talleyrand, Chateaubriand, and the rest, but the sum of the components, that is the interactions of Chateaubriand, Talleyrand, Madame de Stael, and the others, evidently does not equal the resultant, namely the phenomenon of millions of Frenchmen submitting to the Bourbons. That Chateaubriand, Madame de Stael, and others spoke certain words to one another only affected their mutual relations, but does not account for the submission of millions, and therefore, to explain how from these relations of theirs the submission of millions of people resulted, that is, how the component forces equal to one A gave a resultant equal to a thousand times A, the historian is again obliged to fall back on power, the force he had denied, and to recognize it as the resultant of the forces, that is, he has to admit an unexplained force acting on the resultant. And that is just what the universal historians do, and consequently they not only contradict the specialist historians, but contradict themselves. Peasants, having no clear idea of the cause of rain, say, according to whether they want rain or fine weather, the wind has blown the clouds away, or the wind has brought up the clouds. And in the same way the universal historians sometimes, when it pleases them and fits in with their theory, say that power is the result of events, and sometimes, when they want to prove something else, say that power produces events. A third class of historians, the so-called historians of culture, following the path laid down by the universal historians who sometimes accept writers and ladies as forces producing events, again take that force to be something quite different. They see it in what is called culture, in mental activity. The historians of culture are quite consistent in regard to their progenitors, the writers of universal histories. For if historical events may be explained by the fact that certain persons treated one another in such and such ways, why not explain them by the fact that such and such people wrote such and such books? Of the immense number of indications accompanying every vital phenomenon, these historians select the indication of intellectual activity and say that this indication is the cause. But despite their endeavors to prove that the cause of events lies in intellectual activity, only by a great stretch can one admit that there is any connection between intellectual activity and the movement of peoples. And in no case can one admit that intellectual activity controls people's actions, for that view is not confirmed by such facts as the very cruel murders of the French Revolution resulting from the doctrine of the equality of man, or the very cruel wars and executions resulting from the preaching of love. But even admitting as correct all the cunningly devised arguments with which these historians are filled, admitting that nations are governed by some undefined force called an idea, history's essential question still remains unanswered, and to the former power of monarchs and to the influence of advisers and other people introduced by the universal historians, another, newer force, the idea, is added, the connection of which with the masses needs explanation. It is possible to understand that Napoleon had power, and so events occurred. With some effort, one may even conceive that Napoleon, together with other influences, was the cause of an event. But how a book, Les Contrats Sociales, had the effect of making Frenchmen begin to drown one another, cannot be understood without an explanation of the causal nexus of this new force with the event.
Undoubtedly, some relation exists between all who live contemporaneously, and so it is possible to find some connection between the intellectual activity of men and their historical movements, just as such a connection may be found between the movements of humanity and commerce, handicraft, gardening, or anything else you please. But why intellectual activity is considered by the historians of culture to be the cause or expression of the whole historical movement is hard to understand. Only the following considerations can have led historians to such a conclusion. 1. That history is written by learned men, and so it is natural and agreeable for them to think that the activity of their class supplies the basis of the movement of all humanity, just as a similar belief is natural and agreeable to traders, agriculturalists, and soldiers. If they do not express it, that is merely because traders and soldiers do not write history. And 2 that spiritual activity, enlightenment, civilization, culture, ideas, are all indistinct, indefinite conceptions under whose banner it is very easy to use words having a still less definite meaning, and which can therefore be readily introduced into any theory. But not to speak of the intrinsic quality of histories of this kind, which may possibly even be of use to someone for something, the histories of culture, to which all general histories tend more and more to approximate, are significant from the fact that after seriously and minutely examining various religious, philosophic, and political doctrines as causes of events, as soon as they have to describe an actual historic event, such as the campaign of 1812, for instance, they involuntarily describe it as resulting from an exercise of power, and say plainly that that was the result of Napoleon's will. Speaking so, the historians of culture involuntarily contradict themselves, and show that the new force they have devised does not account for what happens in history, and that history can only be explained by introducing a power which they apparently do not recognize. End of chapter 2. This recording is in the public domain.